This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work at pcaac.org. This is Gifts and Graces. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each year at General Assembly, we host an assembly-wide seminar with a panel discussing a topic of timely importance. Sometimes these panels are members of a study committee sharing the fruit of their work. Other times, leaders with a variety of opinions gather to share a specific focus. Here's the panel on civil conversations from June 2019 at the PCA General Assembly in Dallas, Texas. Let me introduce our panel members. You probably already know them. Uh, Erwin Entz, our former moderator. Uh, David Richter, pastor in New England. Uh, Sean Lucas, pastor in uh, Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, Brian Chappell, pastor in Peoria, Illinois. And and, uh, Joel is handling our texting uh, questions. Do, Do you have the information on the how to address the texting, or do we have that on the screen? So throughout the seminar, if you have questions that come up through the panel or you've come in with your own questions. Oh, there it is. On the screen is a number that you can text those questions to that will come up to us, and on the tail end of the seminar, there will be a Q&A time with the speakers. Uh, We'll take those and try to get as many of your questions as we can. So you see the number there on the screen where to text questions. Uh, I know a pastor who attracts a lot of young people to his church, and in one of his services, he allows people to text him questions in the middle of the sermons. So maybe you want to consider that. (laughs) Uh, First of all, I would like to ask uh, all of the panel members uh, simply, uh, how would you define civility? with you, Arwen. Sure. Uh, Good morning, brothers and sisters. Civility in one sense, you look in the the dictionary and you see words like politeness, uh, kindness uh, in conversation. Those are are certainly applicable, but I, I remember in the early couple of years of our church plant, 2007, 2008, in um, Howard County, Maryland, I would see these bumper stickers uh, that everybody was putting on their vehicles that said, true civility in Howard County. Um, as, and, and, and I was wondering, well, what, what was that movement about? And it was actually uh, something that was driven by the Howard County Public Library system. And this is what they, uh, they said. They said, true civility is an ongoing community-wide initiative led by Howard County Library System to position Howard County, Maryland as a model of civility. Valuing diversity, we choose respect, compassion, empathy, 
and inclusiveness as an essential quality, or as essential to our quality of life. We invite all within our community, as well as other communities around the nation, to participate. And in a sort of common grace way, I think they've hit in on uh, some, key, some key aspects of civility. As I think about it, um, things like respect, compassion, and empathy in our engagements for me as an outworking of our commitment on how to love our neighbors well, particularly when there are significant and substantive differences with those uh, with whom we're engaging. Um, so, I, you know, I, I, I think that that's a wonderful explanation of that. And what I would add to that is just kind of the idea of I, civility is not kind of like seeking a vain consensus in some way or just agreement. Um, I actually think that our differences are incredibly important. Our, even our disagreements are important. Um, it's, it's not that we need to disagree with each other less, almost. It's that we need to disagree with each other better in love and treating each other with respect, uh, caring for one another, seeking to speak truth to one another in love, uh, as the scriptures call us to, uh, to truly listen to one another, um, which is incredibly important in our culture today. Um, the idea of actually just listening, not just for the sake of uh, responding with an argument, but actually learning what the other people uh, believe, what they hope for, um, allowing our perceptions of who they are, uh, both intellectually and culturally, to kind of like affect us and to take those in and actually respond in respect. Um, that, that kind of perspective uh, piece is really important. I remember when I was raising support uh, to do my church plant, um, I had a woman in my church who was from California. I'm a church planner in Boston. And um, she asked me uh, about the South, because I grew up in the South. I grew up in Mississippi. And uh, she said, if you're driving through Mississippi or Alabama, do you have to be careful that people won't stop you and pull you out of your car and beat you? And I was like, what? What are you talking about? But then I went and raised support in Mississippi at one point, And I had a woman after one of my talks tell me, uh, ask me the question, like, if you're in Boston and walking around on the street, do you, do you have to be careful of, like, roaming gangs, like, attacking you? And, 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 I, and I realized, like, just the vast amount of cultural perception and misunderstanding that we have with one another that drives the way that we speak to one another, what drives the way we think about one another, how we communicate with one another. And especially in the church, these, these were both Christians. These were both people who loved Jesus very much. And, you know, the idea that we need to lean into... Uh, what it means to allow ourselves to have our perceptions uh, uh, challenged, uh, to really listen to others, uh, to learn from them, and then to respond with love and dignity in that way. I think that's an incredibly important part of this piece that we're talking about. Yeah, I, I think that's incredibly helpful. I've been helped on this topic, especially by Rich Mao's book, uh, Uncommon uh, Civility. Uh, where he, he makes the point that his understanding, and it's become my understanding of civility, is not simply niceness, as we've already heard, but a convicted civility, so that grace and truth go together. The way we treat one another uh, is actually an outworking of the commitments, the truths that we hold. Uh, and so conviction and civility are not opposed to one another, but actually work together. 
of course, the only way that we can do that is actually to know one another, which gets to David's story. Uh, if you could get people from Mississippi and Boston together and you realize, oh, we have a common humanity, um, that would help us in the long run uh, towards civility, that there are no them, there's only us in that regard. But that, that understanding of convicted civility, grace and truth, that's central to my understanding of civility. I love those definitions. One that we have already uh, bound ourselves to as ordained elders in this church is preliminary principle number five, which is at the beginning of our book of church order. It is the duty both of private Christians and societies to exercise mutual forbearance toward each other. That forbearance is humbly accepting that good men may differ to the extent that we continue to work with and speak of brothers with whom we differ with love and respect. The preliminary principle of mutual forbearance solemnly binds each of us to the laws of truth and charity so that the reputation of Christ, the ministry of his church, and the lives of our brothers be not damaged by anything contrary to the word of God or the love of Christ in our speech and conduct. Uh, to those principles, we have solemnly bound ourselves by oath, and uh, sometimes we forget. Well, Sean, uh, I'd like to direct a question to you, and then you chime, uh, then the others can chime in. Uh, political correctness is uh, running amok today. I mean, why are we even talking about civility? Isn't it just uh, political correctness gone awry? Well, that was one of the things that, uh, particularly 2015, 2016, that I heard a lot in our congregation where I was serving at that time, that um, whenever we would try to press on how we do things is just as important as what we do, I would have various church members and leaders say, oh, Sean, that's just political correctness. We just need to be men and speak our minds and do, what, do whatever we want. But, but the Bible actually points us uh, to uh, the kind of courtesy and civility not simply as political correctness, but actually evidence of our lives being changed. Uh, we know well, and perhaps it was verses that we first memorized in Vacation Bible School, Titus 3, verses 4 and 5, right? So when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. We know those verses, we've memorized them, but we fail to note that those verses actually follow uh, the kind of description of our lives being changed. The, the, re, the result, the outworking of regeneration, of salvation that he saved us, is that our lives have changed. Paul begins the chapter by saying, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So those seven descriptors are the things that Titus, as the pastor, is to remind his saved, regenerated congregation that this is now how they're to live. These are the marks, the seven marks of sanctification. Well, these marks, Paul then contrasts to the way we used to be with seven descriptors beginning in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, 
disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. So, so contrasting the way we used to be, and at the end of that description, hated by others and hating one another, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit so that we would show perfect courtesy toward all people. So that treating one another with courtesy and civility, with compassion and graciousness, is not political correctness, as though we're trying to muzzle one another from showing ourselves as the way we really want to be or with the words we really want to speak. Actually, courtesy and civility is a mark of sanctification. And to fail to show courtesy and civility is actually evidence that perhaps we've not grown in grace as much as we think we have. And that's directly appropriate for us as elders in Christ's church. After all, of course, we're on the process of sanctification, but we are also leaders in Christ's church modeling what sanctification looks like. And so if that's the case, according to the Apostle Paul in Titus 3, as those who've been saved and regenerated, we above all people should be submissive to rulers and authorities, obedient, ready for every good work, speaking evil of no one, avoiding quarreling, being gentle, and showing perfect courtesy towards all people. Uh, one of the things that often uh, gets attached to, to me particularly is this kind of, well, Sean, you're just so nice. I hope I am. But but I actually hope that it's actually a mark of God's work in me. I would love for that to be our mark so that people would know us in our denomination as we interact with one another with this kind of perfect courtesy because it's not political correctness. We're not trying to muzzle one another. We're actually trying to demonstrate the work of Christ in us and our commitment to how we do things is just as important as what we do. Anyone else want to add? It was really good. I, yeah, I mean, the only thing I would add to that is not, I think, I don't, I'm not sure that there's anything to add as much for the biblical basis for that. I, just how that kind of fleshes its way out in our church, I think is really important for us to understand. Um, how do we deal with difference based on this idea of how grace has impacted our hearts and lives and how we live these things out? Uh, difference is hard. It's hard to get along with people that you have very big differences with. Uh, it's a struggle. It, it causes us uh, to both reflect on ourselves, you know, hard thoughts and ideas that we have, hard realities, hard structural realities that we might have, hard histories, as we begin to interact with people that are very different with us. And, and as uh, our culture, as a larger culture, begins to become uh, more outwardly diverse and inwardly diverse, and our church becomes that more, which is a beautiful thing. It's a good thing. It's going to cause us to become more and more uncomfortable. And the, and the thing that I would add in that, that I think it's good for us to think about in relation to what Sean said, uh, Jonathan Chaplin has this kind of map of social plurality that I think is really helpful for us as a church. Um, he talks about uh, there's structural plurality. You know, we have, uh, you have systems and structures within our society like uh, churches and schools and organizations and bowling leagues. These are good things that are fleshing out of our creation mandate of who we are. 
Uh, they're really beautiful things, and we should celebrate that. We should celebrate that diversity that we have. Then you have cultural diversity. Um, these are things like race um, and culture in different areas of our, of our world and lives. Um, uh, a church in Jackson, Mississippi is going to look very different than a church in South Africa. And, and we would recognize that openly, right? That, that makes perfect sense. But we oftentimes don't think about the fact that a church in Jackson, Mississippi will also look very different than a church in Boston, Massachusetts. And uh, within the context of uh, the regular principle, we, we, we need to express that and celebrate those realities and the cultural differences. This is an expression of the beauty of our Lord and the diversity of what he's given us. Um, but then he, he goes on to talk about that there are confessional differences and pluralities. And these are worldviews. These are religious differences. These are different ideas of uh, the sunum bonum, what is the greatest good in our world. And that we cannot celebrate. Uh, these are things that we have to recognize as a result of the fall. And we need to push back winsomely and, and civilly, both with each other and our culture, as we think about those things. The thing that I think is important in this to recognize is that we often confuse the first two with the last one. We often confuse cultural diversity with uh, confessional diversity. Um, and as a result, we blur those lines and, and it's much, much more difficult for us to actually engage with one another and sharpen one another and encourage one another and build one another up so the glory of our God will go forward in this world. And I think that it's important for us to think deeply about that. How do we celebrate um, these uh, first two, these structural and cultural diversity that we have and how do we expand that? as God's great gift in this world, while at the same time holding to the reality of truth and the goodness of our Lord and how he's communicated that uh, and the grace that in which he's done that. So I think that's really important for us to think about in this. Uh, so we're, we're basically talking about uh, Christian behavior and speech, not political correctness. Uh, Brian, you uh, already have quoted from the Book of Church Order, which is part of our Constitution, but the Constitution also uh, includes the Westminster Standards. Uh, what do the standards have to say uh, to this issue? I think for a number of us, when we begin to look at how we address one another in assemblies, uh, there's much said in our confessional statements, but we're almost always drawn to larger Catechism 145 which is one of the most lengthy of the larger catechism responses, which is what is forbidden in the commandment against false witness. And you wonder why they wrote so much on that. And then you remember maybe the vigor of the arguments at the Westminster Assembly and why they were after those debates uh, so concerned to say, did we do it well and how do we do it again in a way that is biblical? So in uh, larger Catechism 145, some surprising aspects of what is false witness. And uh, the first category is the obvious one. It is expressing anything that damages truth or reputation without cause or proof. But the second, it's listening to the same. And the third category is countenancing the same. That is not only just allowing it, but not hindering it is also a sin. Uh, just some discussion. False witness involves expressing anything that damages truth or reputation without cause or proof. That means speaking untruth 
by lying, but it also includes concealing the truth, passing false rumors, unnecessary publication of weakness, misconstruing words, actions, or intentions, which means we lie not merely by making false statements, but by suspicious questioning that causes others to be unjustly accused, reviled, scoffed at, or suspected. The sin of promoting falsehood includes uh, not speaking when truth needs to be known by hiding facts, telling partial truths, or holding one's peace when iniquity calls either for reproof or complaint, which means we can lie by silence as well as by statement. The sin of false witness also includes listening to any report that damages truth or reputation without cause or proof, which reminds us, maybe we heard as we were children, that it is just as wrong to listen to gossip as to speak it, either by confessional language, receiving evil reports, rejoicing in others' disgrace or infamy, or stopping our ears against a just defense, which means we can break the Ninth Commandment by not grieving for the harm done to others' reputation or good name, or refusing to hear reports that would defend their good reputation or name. Finally, the Catechism says we also sin in false witness by countenancing, that is, supporting or allowing report that damages truth or reputation without cause or proof, which reminds us that we are not guiltless if we fail to, the language, hinder in others such things as damage the good name of our neighbors, brothers, or leaders, which means we bear false witness if we allow others to do the dirty work by granting loyalty or readership or subscriptions or advertising dollars to those who unfairly represent or uncharitably speak of brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. They are remarkably intense standards, thoughtful about what it means not only to say something, but to allow to be said or to support what is said that is contrary to truth or charity. The Bible compares the church to a house. If that's the case, the PCA Administrative Committee is the plumbing of the church. Its work is mostly hidden from view, and you don't appreciate it until it breaks. The ACE provides churches, presbyteries, and the assembly with the expertise and action needed to keep their ministries moving forward. They don't set the agenda for the PCA. They just make sure its agenda is accomplished. Their vital work depends on generous churches and individuals like you. Learn more about them at PCAAC.org. Uh, it seems to me that uh, we're polite to each other in person, usually, but a lot of the uncivil conversation comes on uh, social media, media or online forums. Uh, could you 
comment on that, on the benefits of uh, being civil and the uh, uh, curses <laughs> of not being civil? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's right. The overwhelming majority of us use uh, social media, Facebook and Twitter, and uh, responding to blogs, writing articles, and the like. And we are certainly um, in a hyper-connected uh, world and time, uh, electronically and digitally. However, one of the things that this has uh, enabled is a a deeper sense of polarization and division. It, it doesn't naturally foster that civility, that um, that that love, and that uh, and that care. We can actually now um, put ourselves into uh, deeper echo chambers, where uh, the voices that we uh, that we like are the ones that we listen to, which. Uh, which then hinders us from being able to engage well across these, these deep cultural and other political differences that, um, that we've talked about already, right? Because part of the challenge is that the deep polarization in our society is also uh, infiltrated uh, into the church and it's seen on on social media. And so some of the questions that, um, that I ask myself personally when, I'm, when I am willing to engage in social media, which these days is not very often in, because I've, I've begun to learn, well, maybe a couple years ago that um, you actually don't typically change anybody's mind on social media when you have conversations on Twitter or Facebook and there are disagreements, you know, you're not changing anybody's, um, anybody's opinion uh, for the most part. And so the kind of questions that I ask myself kind of pastorally or biblically is what am I, what's my aim? Like if, I, if we're actually gonna engage in a, in a, in a Twitter conversation, with someone with whom I is offering a different perspective, what's, what am I after? And most of these are going to be uh, with folks who are, who are believers, at least in my case. Am I, am I trying to win an argument or am I trying to win a heart, right? Am I, am I, tr am I after the kind of engagement um, that, that actually deepens and broadens the sense of love for my brother or my sister. And then secondly, right, that's a deeper examination of my own heart um, to say what's going on inside of me, right? What's, what's driving me in this, uh, in this conversation? Think about, you know, um, uh, Sean has already quoted from, uh, from Titus. I also think about uh, in these kinds of engagements, uh, Paul says uh, to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 3, it's also right about what is this new life 
look like in practice now, now that you've been raised with Christ, he says in uh, the beginning of chapter 3, that you're seeking the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And then he goes on to the practical implications of that. And he says, you know, uh, therefore you put to death what's earthly in you. Um, and he starts to talk about in the Colossian church, right, their, their differences that are very visible. He says in verse 11 here, there's not Greek and Jew, um, uh, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. And then he says, put on then as God's chosen ones who are holy and loved, compassionate hearts, kindness, uh, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule your hearts, to which you indeed call in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing psalms and uh, uh, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And it's, it's, it's interesting how he says, listen, right, he still says teaching and warning or admonishing one another, right? This, this, this is not about just um, finding a sense of of agreement and all necessarily being on the same page and of the same opinion in everything, but there's a way in which we engage it um, from the standpoint of putting on love, which is the binding glue of perfection. And so when it comes to social media, I mean, you've got to take extra measure because it doesn't lend itself to that kind of uh, putting on love as the as the binding glue of perfection uh, in our engagements. So, right. anybody else have any comments on? Yeah, social? just to follow up on what Erwin was saying, I do think one of the things, the changes that Facebook has made uh, in terms of creating additional secret groups, doesn't help us. Um, I happen to have been kind of joined into several of these across the spectrum of the PCA, and. Uh, one of the things that is, I think, particularly dangerous about them is they create echo chambers, as, as Erwin was saying, so much so that in these ideologically different closed and secret groups that for however I've gotten in there, I've gotten in there. Um, I've, in, across, just in the past two weeks, I've, had, I've seen posts from across the spectrum saying, what are those people thinking about on the other side? Uh, well, no, we're not. Those, there is no them. <laughs> There's only us. We're, the, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We've been bought with the blood of Christ. There, there is no them. Uh, and so, so these echo chambers within social media um, where, where we, we can actually get angry and vent and call others those people, that, that actually mitigates against the gospel that we profess. And it makes what we do, whether in presbyteries, uh, or here at the General Assembly, that much more difficult because then we develop this, this us-them uh, mentality where we presume not the best about the other, 
but we presume the worst about the other. We, we presume for folks from Mississippi presume that folks from Boston are actually going to, you know, hit us up as gangs and people from, you know, because we don't, we treat each other and we objectify each other as the other. Uh, and that, that actually dehumanizes us and dechristianizes us. So, so I, I can't warn us enough to pay attention to the dangers. There's plenty of benefits. I'm on social media. Um, it's another way for my folks in my church to have access to me. It's really, really important. It's, uh, it's also important to be able to see funny memes like uh, Kirk Cameron's going to play me in my biopic someday. <laughs> um, so lots of benefits, cute cat videos, awesome. Uh, but, but there are some significant dangers to the way we deal with one another that social media presents. Anybody else have any comment on that? Uh, David, in this uh, culture in which we live, we uh, have 24-hour uh, news cycles, 24-7. Uh, we have social media. We have a culture of outrage. Um, what, what does Christianity uh, have to offer to such a culture? I mean, I, I actually think that's an incredibly important question because I think we, we can begin to just think about this in-house, and I think it actually helps us to deal with it in-house as we begin to push it out. Um, you know, Robert Bella and Charles Taylor and Tim Keller and many others have, have talked about the fact that this question of what Christianity has to offer our culture and in, 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 by means of civility uh, and virtue is, uh, is, is almost a, a kind of an interesting, silly question, right? Um, because uh, uh, our modern Western society believes wholeheartedly in this idea of expressive individualism. Um, we believe that truth really comes from inside of ourselves. In order to find truth, you look inside. You find it in there, and then you express it out, right? And so um, that, is, that is what we are doing as a society. That's how we're trying to express truth in the world. That's how we, uh, we uh, create a foundation for how we engage with one another. But the problem with that is um, if, if that is the foundation by which we engage with one another, um, it becomes uh, impossible to actually deal with our differences. Um, and to adjudicate our uh, disagreements. Um, if I come to the belief by looking inside myself that what you have uh, is what would give me joy, then why would not I just kill you and take it away from you, ultimately? Now, I know that's an extreme example, but we do that all the time. We'll assassinate our, each other online. We'll assassinate each other um, in social media. Um, in order to uh, gain more power and influence for myself and put others down. Um, uh, we have no basis or foundation as a society anymore to actually are, uh, to deal with these realities. Uh, you know, James K.A. Smith says that uh, our culture now is a vast archipelago of self-interest and egoism. Um, uh, the, the philosopher Peter Kreft says that uh, our culture is the most religious culture in the history of the world because every individual person within the United States is their own God. Um, and it begs the question, as the philosopher Rousseau once said, you know, is it possible to live in peace with those who you think are damned, who disagree with you fundamentally? And so how do we function with this and this? And I, and I believe this gets to the question of what Christianity has to offer at a very foundational level. 
Christianity is the foundation. It is the root of the idea of an other-centered ethic. Um, uh, you know, most cultures, all cultures, really, were kind of this shame and honor society before Christianity came along. Um, but when Jesus hit the scene, uh, the idea um, of, that was, had been formed in Jewish thought of, of an imago Dei, that we are created in the image of God, that each individual person has dignity in and of themselves that is vast beyond anything that we can imagine, um, strikes at the heart of this kind of reality where our culture is. We, you know, we, are the mo- we, we as a culture hold the highest values of any culture in history. I know that's a shocking statement, but it's true. Uh, justice, individual rights, uh, individual dignity, uh, fairness, right? We hold these things up at such a high level, but we can't adjudicate them because we have no outside foundation outside of ourselves. If you're just looking inside of yourselves of how we can actually deal with those things. But Christianity actually provides us the spaces, um, not only with the idea of the Imago Dei, which is foundational to all of this, but within our very salvation. Nothing we do has anything to do with how or why we are saved. The Lord Jesus came and by grace extended all of our salvation to us. And I love, the, you know, one of the things that I love most about Reformed theology and why uh, I'm, I'm Presbyterian to a large degree is this concept of double imputation. That my salvation was given to me by Jesus Christ and his grace, that all of my sin, I don't deserve anything, was taken from me placed upon him, and he died for that. And therefore, that should humble me to the very core of my being. But then he gave me his righteousness. And now when the Father looks at me, he sees Christ and his righteousness. And that should breed incredible boldness. We can come before the throne of grace now. And that is the foundation by which we can engage with one another. Not only do I know that I have incredible dignity because I'm made in the image of God, but I have incredible humility as I engage with others, knowing that I am a sinner. And I don't deserve anything from the Lord. It's only by his grace that I can live in a world that he's created for me and that his righteousness is actually the foundation of my confidence as I go forward into that world. You know, uh, Michael Sandel, he's... uh, the, the head of the ethics department at Harvard University, which is right down the street from my house, uh, talks about the fact that we, as we engage in the public square today, desperately need a bold humility, a humble boldness as we go out into the world. But there is no foundation for that outside of this other-centered ethic that we get within Christianity. And the power of the gospel is, is, is amazing as it works through that reality, as it goes out into our culture. Um, I'm, I preached through the book of Acts uh, in, the, in, the, in the spring, and, and I love how, how when you begin to see the gospel go forward out of Jerusalem, and the Lord is actually pushing them out, uh, some really beautiful things begin to happen. Antioch um, was a fascinating city. It was the most cosmopolitan city at the time in the region. It was a huge city, and it actually had walls that divided the different ethnic groups in the different neighborhoods that existed there. And in Acts 13, if you read the list of elders who were in that early church, they were five different men from five different ethnic backgrounds representing four different continents. The gospel was literally breaking down walls that were separating neighborhoods and drawing people together across their difference for the glory of the Lord. It's amazing. The first 
person we have on record who ever spoke against slavery in the history of the world, written, uh, is a bishop in the second century. Uh, Christianity, if you study the early parts of Christianity, was the, the very first women's right move, movement ever, that all people are made in the image of God, and we all have dignity before him. We're all equal in him. In Acts 11, uh, this is, uh, we're told that this is the very first cross-cultural, cross-ethnic, cross-regional relief effort in the history of the world. People before that never would think about going across lines in order to help people outside of their tribe. But the gospel pushed them out in amazing ways, not only for civility, but out of love, out of love for the other. And the same power that existed in the early church exists in us today. And the question is, do we believe that? Do we believe the gospel? Do we believe the power of the gospel to break down these lines of incivility that exist outside of us but within us? And and I'll just end with this. I'll give you a little illustration of how I think that we can take this and actually begin to use it in the culture. And it's just an illustration of a ministry that we have in our church. We have a ministry called Think and Drink in our church. And uh, we have a local restaurant that we go to. It used to be weekly. Now it's bi-weekly because it kind of wore me out a little bit. but uh, whatever I'm reading in the Atlantic or the New York Times or uh, uh, you know, the New Yorker or whatever that particular week, uh, things that are uh, sensitive in our culture, we don't avoid difficult things, uh, we'll put it out on meetup.com. Meetup.com is this organization you can kind of uh, use as an app to, to draw people together. And we'll just say, we're going to talk about civility today or we're going to talk about a particular political issue today. And we have over 4,000 people now signed up in our group and we have 20 to 30 non-Christians that come every time we meet. And I start that off by talking about uh, the reality of tolerance, that tolerance in our culture today, civility in our culture today, is I will tolerate you and I'll be civil with you uh, up until the point where you disagree with me, and then it's over, right? That's what tolerance means. And we see that both in religious ways, right? You know, we can be intolerant of others, but also in, you know, the, you know, the liberal uh, oftentimes what we see in our culture is kind of cosmopolitan liberalism that's kind of, uh, you know, marginalizing and attacking and uh, belittling religion. But there is a vast hunger for a place, a, a, a kind of a sphere by which we can sit and actually be civil with one another. And what we're seeing in that ministry is that people long for this. They're excited about it. And they'll actually are willing. This is one of the most liberal places in our culture. Uh, they're willing to engage with all kinds of wonderful, I cannot tell you how many times I've stayed afterwards and, and talked to people about the gospel. We've had people come to know the Lord. We had a, we had a man who came to know the Lord uh, through my apprentice and is in his new church plant now. We have another person who came to know the Lord who's in my church now. We are seeing people come to know the Lord through creating uh, these gospel-centered civil environments in which we are teaching people what it is to be human based on the grace of our Lord. And I think we can do that. And as we extend that out into our culture, we'll see wonderful things. And we need to pray that the Lord would actually use us in that way to to reach our culture, to actually bring people in and to see people come to know the Lord. Anybody else want to comment on what Christianity has to offer to our culture? Brian? Um, Following on really uh, the lovely concepts that David said, and maybe just making it a little more personal, if, if the gospel of the kingdom is the hope of an alternate society, then one of those hopes is that good men can differ intensely and charitably, and that that's possible. 
And that's not just, you know, in an age of polarities in our culture, that's not just a gift to our culture, that is a gift to our children. So, uh, a little personal, as, as one who has sometimes been the subject of an occasional comment on a blog or article, um, particularly when my children were in their teens, it was very hard, not just for them, for us to know how to parent them because uh, they would read things and just, just get angry, if not hurt, I mean, just angry. And sometimes we forget that our uh, ecclesiastical opponents have children and spouses and families. But I remember uh, saying with some frequency and praying for my children by saying to them when they would read things that were, were improper, just, just say, that is not the church of Jesus Christ. That is not the kingdom. Do not hate the church because of what you are reading about your dad on that blog. And in a strange way, the, the, the love that they have for the church now and the intensity with which they are willing to defend it now is because they do not believe that is the church of Jesus Christ. They believe it's something very different. And, and I praise God for prayers being answered that we could give that to lots more children if they begin to believe such commentary is not the church of Jesus Christ. We have an alternate kingdom that we are loyal to. Yeah, just, I just want to uh, reiterate the point that David was making because what it brought to mind is, is kind of what I shared from uh, Rosaria Butterfield in the, the message last night when she talked about this, she's talking about hospitality, right? The gospel comes with a, with a house key. And she says, the, what we are desiring to see is, is strangers become neighbors and neighbors become family. Like that ultimately driven by this love, we want to see ourselves across all these differences become uh, brothers and sisters in the Lord. And, and, uh, and, and so she says, therefore, right, we refuse to let our words be stronger than our relationships, right? We, we will pursue the relationships as, as, as with the same vigor that we engage in these strong words as we promote the truth. And that's what David was describing in these meetups that he uh, and, the, and, the, and the church do to say, we've got strong words and differences, everybody does but we put it in the context of the yearning for real relationships that everybody has. And this is what Christianity has to offer. We can demonstrate that in real life, real practical ways, and people see it and they see something that is different, far different than the talk about tolerance, far different than uh, the talk about diversity in the culture, but a real living into pursuing relationship and engagement across these differences. And just to piggyback on what Erwin was just saying, I think a, a, an important way we can do this, both with one another and with our larger culture, is to listen well and to listen first. And listen, it, listening doesn't mean I'm listening to you so I can formulate my answer that's going to win the day. But listening actually means that I am actively engaged in trying to understand what you're saying, and I'm willing to even give it back to you 
in such a way that you say, yes, that's what I think, before then I begin to respond. Um, and sometimes that means listening to things that we might vigorously disagree with so that we might find the, the common point by which we can affirm that one another's humanity, but also give a word for Jesus Christ. So just an example of this on a very current practical topic that we deal with today. Last week I was teaching at RTS Atlanta, teaching my class on gospel and race. And, and one of the, two of the books that I assigned for the class that we compared and contrasted um, was W.B. Du Bois's uh, The Souls of Black Folk and Tanishi Coates' Between the World and Me. Um, and in many ways, they're similar books. They're beautiful, difficult, sad, uh, ultimately, books. Um, but, but I thought it was important for, A, to, to list, for our students to listen well to those who've experienced oppression and difficulty and injustice and the sense of double consciousness uh, because of racial oppression. It's important to listen well to those with whom we might disagree philosophically, religiously, politically, and all the rest in order to actually enter into their experience so that we might give a word for the gospel. But brothers and sisters, if we can't do that with one another, how in the world are we going to do that with the larger culture? And, and, and that's where I think uh, David's point about listening well and treating one another well with courtesy actually has to be done in order to be pushed out in our larger engagement of the culture is so much, it's so important and so right. Uh, and it's a way, the way, to, way forward to that is to listen and to actively listen well. Thank you. Can I say one more thing? Sure. One of the most deeply convicting things, I, my, one of my professors in seminary was a guy named Jaron Bars, and, uh, and he, he's one of the most winsome civil people you'll ever meet. And, um, and I remember him telling me one time, uh, and reminding, just reminding me of the gospel, he said, you know, David, sin is not out there, just out there. Sin is in your own heart. And I think oftentimes in this conversation, where we, where we get bogged down is the fear that if we go out and we engage with others, that somehow we're going to sully ourselves. Um, that's not the gospel. The gospel is that my righteousness has been given to me by Christ. That I don't have to fear. In fact, the power of the gospel can go forward in amazing ways. It doesn't mean that we, need to, we don't need to challenge each other to remain faithful in certain ways. I'm not saying that. Please don't hear that. But it does mean that we can engage, we can love, we can, we, can, we can get dirty. We can have ourselves challenged, our cultures challenged, our power systems challenged, in love and sacrifice to the other because our Savior loved and sacrificed us in that way. He came, he gave up his power, he gave up uh, his uh, privilege, he gave up his uh, uh, status as sitting next to the Father in heaven to come and be with us. And he calls us to do the same with others and love in that way. And that is the great, we're not, we're not just called to be civil. I think, you know, that's one of the things that I was thinking about this. We're, civility is a wonderful thing. And I think it's, it's absolutely necessary. But Christianity actually calls us to love, which is a much higher standard. And that's what we, we absolutely have to seek after. Thank you. Uh, before we get to questions, uh, do anybody want to suggest some resources that would be helpful along this? Uh, we knew that was coming, so uh, I've already mentioned the larger catechism. Uh, scripture has been mentioned. Don't. 
Don't forget Matthew 5.22, whoever says you are a fool to his brother is liable of hellfire. Uh, some um, things you might not have seen. Uh, Rob Barrett's preface to Todd Wood and Daryl Falk's book, The Fool and the Heretic, which is uh, how two Christian scientists disagree um, in Christian dialogue on issues of creation and evolution. And even if you don't read the rest of the book, the preface uh, is remarkable for how we should talk to one another and the damage that can be done if we are not aware of biblical standards. Uh, a second you may not be aware of, a Christian journalism in the book Speaking the Truth, edited by Kimberly Collins in the World Journalism Institute, which was a presentation to the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., on how Christians should do a journalistic reference. Uh, hard to read, but important. If you're constantly in social media, uh, a man willing to talk about the addictions of social media, Joe Carter, in the age of terrorism meets the era of the troll, uh, the March 16, 219 reference in the Gospel Coalition. Fred Greco's article on the Gospel Reformation Network website on being slow to speak. Uh, in addition to our confessional statements and scriptural statements are just um, current, maybe unusual places to turn, but with some very helpful comments. And then the, the book that I mentioned by Richard Mao, Uncommon Civility, has really become the classic textbook on this. It's now in a second edition. And, uh, but not just that book, all of Rich's books, to me, uh, model this kind of gracious civility, convicted civility. Um, sometimes Rich gets uh, very unfairly labeled as a quote-unquote liberal simply because he's willing to, to listen well uh, in order to engage in conversation and give a witness for Christ. But to me, he's a, he's a beautiful model. His picture actually, I got a picture with him uh, at a conference this past year, and it sits on my desk just to remind me of his witness to civility. Was it a selfie? Most of those are some of the resources that I used as well. Um, uh, John Inazu has a, a book out and several articles around the idea of confident civility that I think have been helpful uh, in kind of how I've come to think about this. Um, James K. A. Smith uh, has a lecture series that he did on uh, reforming uh, cultural engagement around civility that I think is really helpful uh, in that as well. And then I, I mentioned Jonathan Chaplin earlier, um, and there are several things that he has out about this kind of uh, societal map and kind of this idea of structural and cultural and uh, confessional uh, diversity and how we think about that and how we're actually civil across those lines. I think those are all very helpful resources. All right, we have about 15 minutes for questions. Joel, you want to tee it up? I sure can. Uh, so, David, you made this uh, comment that we should be cautious about confusing cultural diversity with confessional diversity, that those two things don't equal one another. And so there were a number of questions of, uh, if you go home from here today and in your family or in your churches, that's happening. What are the individual or communal practices, the things that you're actually doing? Okay, that's the reality. How do you move forward? So to David, but then also to the rest of the panel. All right, anybody wanna weigh in on that? 
So, uh, you know, uh, I don't know how many of you were at the, well, the, I think the way I responded, I don't know how many of you were at the M&A launch yesterday, but uh, Alex Young spoke, and I, he was just wonderful, and he did a great job. And one of the things he talked about is the idea that um, uh, the secret of change is not just kind of having goals for something. You know, we, we had, you know, we're, we've had goals for different things in our denomination. Um, it's actually creating systems that lead to, to habits. And, and a lot of that has to do with worship. Like, in our worship, are we modeling these things? Are we modeling repentance? Um, are we modeling what it looks like to have a righteousness in Christ? What it looks like um, for us to um, actually love one another well? And how we speak about that in our preaching and our teaching? I think that that begins to form the community. And then are we doing things within our community that it's actually pushing those realities out into the world? Um, and I think that's true within our larger church as well. Um, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we have confessional unity with one another. We oftentimes don't agree about that, right? But we have an enormous amount of confessional unity. We have a lot of cultural disunity. Uh, and uh, as we change, as we become more diverse, it becomes much more uncomfortable, right? Uh, it causes us to deal with uncomfortable realities. It causes us to think about giving up power. It causes us to think about uh, sacrificing of ourselves uh, for the good of others um, and to invite others in, as, as Ern was saying earlier. Um, are we modeling that in our communities? Are we inviting those who are different from us into our churches? Are we actively seeking to break down those barriers? Uh, do we believe the gospel is powerful enough to do that in our lives? Um, uh, I, I think just living out, that's just living out and embodying the gospel in our, in our everyday lives. And then, then as leaders in the church, actually modeling that to others to actually try to create habits and systems that begin to lead us to a more civil, more loving church um, that the Lord, I believe, is actually calling us to. Erwin, you uh, talked some about how you personally approach social media. A lot of the questions uh, circulated around uh, social media and how that changes the landscape on civility. Uh, and uh, apparently Sean gets placed in a lot of anonymous groups. Uh, <laughs> somehow it just ends up there. Uh, lots of questions and comments about that as well. Uh, so if that's what your individual practice, Erwin, is, there's a question of how do you respond? And so maybe on one end of the spectrum, we all become neo-Luddites and just drop, you know, we never check anything. Uh, and then there's a danger running the other way, which is we become the, the uncivil police who are chasing everybody. Uh, how do you find that right balance? Yeah, thanks. Uh, so it's, for me personally, I have to very often kind of step back and draw back because there is a temptation just to be drawn in and spend an inordinate amount of time engaging on social media and not in my community with the real people who are around me. And so it's, it's an awareness of is this actually becoming too much of a distraction for me in terms of what makes up my, my time in my day and in my week. And so thinking through, uh, right, there are, there are days when, you know, I don't go on Twitter at all, right? Because the other aspect of it, that there are, what I realize sometimes is the more I'm engaging, the worse off it is for my soul. 
um, the, because I know I don't actually have the time to engage and respond, but just even reading some of the vitriol and some of the, uh, the uncivil, um, uncharitable engagement, it grates at me. And so I've got to be mentally prepared to say, okay, I'm going to spend a little bit of time, I'm going to go here, and not, I'm not going to just be random and follow the, uh, the read down the, all of the tweets. I'm going to be intentional. I'll, I'll look and decide, okay, is this something that I want to, uh, to have a conversation uh, with someone about? And so, yes, right, it, it does depend on the individual, but, but it, it is, um, it's extremely important to be aware of when the, that kind of engagement is just is just taking up too much of your of your thought and of your time when when we're really actually called to be um, to dealing with our communities and the people we have relationships with around us. I have a love hate relationship with social media, and one of the the great things that uh, you can do on your phone is actually delete, <laughs> like actually delete the app. Um, and so I'll go through seasons where, you know, like right now, Facebook is not on my phone, Twitter's on my phone. Uh, I'm sure here in the next couple of weeks I'll delete Twitter, <laughs> then I'll put it back on. You know, and so yeah, I have this weird hate, love-hate relationship with it. And I think being okay just saying, I don't need this on my phone. Um, so I don't have this constant fear of missing out. What are people saying? What's going on? Is it, has anyone liked something I said? Da 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 da. Um, I think that's just being honest with yourself about your own kind of propensity to idolatry with social media is, I think, really really important. Um, I think another thing that's really important though is is the beautiful mute button. Um, you know, muting conversations. You know, muting people. <laughs> um, I mean that that's important too because I mean at some level. Um, unhealthy, when people are acting in an unhealthy way on social media, um, that affects us and it can affect our entire days. And so being willing to mute periodically and then unmute using those tools that social media gives you are really, really helpful. And then the other thing that came to mind as, as I was just thinking about that, that question from Joel was if you, uh, if you Google and just do Ligon Duncan rules for social media, Ligon has 10 rules for engagement on social media. They're just beautiful and priceless and really, really helpful that I would commend to you. Uh, and central to them, the fifth one is exalt Christ, Bible, grace, truth, gospel. You know, if, if we did that and then the next one, stay out of food fights, uh, those two things together uh, would really help us uh, in our use of social media. Uh, also, I want to follow with, with uh, each of those comments, but particularly Irwin, on self-examination of what is unhealthy for your soul, which is, is in my mind, um, one of the hardest ones to self-examine. It's why the Joe Carter article that I mentioned is helpful, because it talks about the nature of uh, addictions to uh, habitual anger that may uh, be a consequence. And to asking uh, the questions, are you staying up late or getting up early or spending tons of your productive hours researching the latest unscrupulous maneuver of your opponents or who has wrote the, written the latest best zinger to get them or what it takes to garner the applause of your allies? Is your church or family or ministry being neglected so that you can get in a few more punches or laughs 
at others' expense. So uh, the personal thing, um, after a few decades in this church, uh, at times in the maelstrom of the discussion, if you are an habitually angry young man, you are almost certainly going to leave this church ultimately, or sadly, your family, because it is hard to be one person in one sphere of your life and a different person in another sphere of your life. Just since coming to this assembly, three of the more active individuals on social media have either left this church, I've been told in this last year, or left their families. Now that's three. And if you go the decades of what we've examined, you would say that is the common route of those who are habitually angry in the commentary in our church. And if they are not habitually angry young men who leave, they become hardened bitter men who stay, who are in the church with few allies except those who will send them into battle for the things that those that they are too circumspect to say. So they send the calloused ones into battle for them. And I, I, for the love of your own soul, if you're habitually angry on the web, um, look, is this healthy for you and for your family and for the church? And just, just something to self-examine about. Thanks. I, thanks. I mean, that was wonderful. I, the only thing I would say as well is I, I think we're really good at policing other people's tribes and we are not very good at policing our own tribes. And one of the, the horrible effects of individualism within our culture I think as well is the breakdown of, of mentorship, the breakdown of godly discipleship of older men to younger men. Uh, what would it look like if we became a church where older men were taking men who were in their own you know, cultural engagement tribes or own particular theological tribes and actually helping and teaching them what civility, what real love look like for the other. Um, I think we desperately need that. And I think we're called to that by our Lord. So. The, there was a series of questions and I'm saving the hardest one for last and also we'll run out of time so that can be your uh, exit pod or parachute. Um, it really uh, along the lines of truth. And so if you follow Brian's advice and you read scripture uh, to learn about being civil, then you're going to run into some prophets, uh, John the Baptist, Jesus, and Paul, that in some ways, both uh, within their own communities that they're writing or speaking to, uh, wouldn't maybe meet the definition of civil uh, or do they, but then how does wisdom come to bear? And so this question of truth within our circles, um, when is uh, something that may be received as uncivil, but it's truthful, how do you weigh that out? And then what about when the gospel in our broader society is viewed as uncivil? How, right, so, so what about uh, that tension of when we say we're Christians, we should be leading on this. Um, but then the response is, but the message that you bring isn't itself civil. Who first goes, John? 
Yeah, so I've thought a lot about this because I have a, a gentleman in my church who uh, meets with me periodically, both to tell me that I'm a liberal uh, and to uh, emphasize uh, truth and grace. That's what he always comes to me with is, Sean, you don't talk enough about truth. It's truth and you, know, you want to do grace, but it's truth and grace. But actually, when you, I actually Googled, I Googled this last night, um, when you actually Google grace and truth in the Bible, it actually is the other order. <laughs> it's grace and truth come to us through Jesus Christ and grace through truth. And so, so grace is not opposite to truth. That's why in my definition that I mentioned in convicted, uh, with convicted civility, it's a both and, not an either or. But in standing for the truth, that doesn't give us the excuse to be angry about it. Um, one of the things that I like to say, I love Reformed theology. I love being Presbyterian. I wrote a book about it. I'm not angry about it. Uh, I'm not angry about it. And, uh, and yet all too often in our stance for the truth, we come across as angry in our, in our truthfulness. And so, so grace and truth go together. Now, now, what about John the Baptist? You brood of vipers. Um, well, if, if we're John the Baptist, then we can speak that way. Um, uh, if, you know, the Apostle Paul withstanding Peter to his face or having a sharp conflict with Barnabas, if you're the Apostle Paul, you can do that. Um, but I, I think, again, going back to the biblical directives for common folk like you and me, um, there is a certain kind of courtesy. The Lord's servant, Paul, after all, said to his young protege, Timothy, must not, that's the shall language in the BCO, must not quarrel. Um, so uh, I don't think that the, the biblical examples of those who, quote unquote, may appear to be uncivil, politically incorrect, um, that, that's not our excuse then to be angry and to come across as jerks. Now, I, how we do things is just as important as what we do. Grace and truth, not reversing the order. Thank you. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They're free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.